what was it like for black men who fought in the American Civil War? You may have seen the 1989 movie Glory, starring Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman, depicting the courage, suffering, and sacrifice of African-American soldiers, but what the movie doesn't go into explicitly is the impact of this conflict on these soldiers' sense of manhood. What did it mean for them as men, not just to fight, but to prove themselves on the battlefield as men, in the eyes of their white counterparts and in their own, in an era when they were not considered men? in the fullest sense of the term. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That word men did not include them at the time, not in the eyes of a great many at least. But now they had a chance to maybe, just maybe, correct that fateful omission, to establish for themselves a greater opportunity to provide for their families, to control their own destinies, and to be seen once and for all, finally, as men. Here today to help us understand the perspectives of these black soldiers is military scholar Verb Washington, whose book Eagles on Their Buttons tells the story of the 5th Ohio Regiment of black soldiers in the Civil War, and dwells repeatedly on themes of masculinity and what service meant to these men. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our continuing patron, Veronica C.R. Washington Ramos, for making this episode possible. Hey folks, believe it or not, this is our 50th episode. I can't believe that we've made it to 50 episodes already after launching barely more than a year ago. It feels like so much has happened since then because, well, because it has. Plenty has happened in the world. There's no denying that. But there's a lot that has happened with the show, too. We've covered a lot of ground in that time, exploring sex and gender from the days of hunter-gatherers to the 21st century, from ancient Mesopotamia to Nazi Germany, and from the Aztecs to the Maori of New Zealand. We've covered perspectives from straight to gay to trans to cross-dressing, subcultures like BDSM, gender issues from femininity to masculinity to third genders, even intersex, and we've covered the ways that peoples from all these eras and communities, well, got it on. Now today's topic is a sort of continuation of a previous episode, but in a way that I could not do myself. We did an episode entitled How to Be a Man in Civil War America, Go check that out if you haven't done so already. It gives a broad base on what was going on at the time for men in the North, the South, upper class, lower class, but it was only able to lightly touch on the experience of African-American men because, well, I just didn't have the expertise for that. I always wanted us to return to it, and now, with the help of today's interviewee, we can. Today we are here with Verb Washington. Now, the name on the spine of his book is Versal F. Washington, in case you want to check it out, I recommend you do, but he prefers to go by Verb. 
He is a retired colonel in the United States Army. He served two tours in combat, including the Persian Gulf War and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He has served on the history faculty at the United States Military Academy at West Point and at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He was the professor of military science and the chair of the Department of Military Science at the University of Dayton from 2003 to 2007, and is now a lecturer and assistant dean for student academic affairs. His book, Eagles on Their Buttons, A Black Infantry Regiment in the Civil War, tells the story of the 5th Ohio Regiment in the USCT, or United States Colored Troops, which was the official term at the time for African American soldiers. Now, war has always been a proving ground for masculinity, for better or for worse, but that's the way it has traditionally been. But these men had more to prove than just, you know, that they could stand up to a volley of musket fire without running to their mommies. They had so much more to prove, and I could not help but wonder what that must have been like for them. Today, Verb Washington is here to help us with that. First of all, thanks for being here. Sure, happy to be here. All right, so we are going to get into the masculinity of African-American Civil War soldiers just in a second. But my first question that I really want to focus on is kind of a much more basic one because it's something that it's like I get it, but I don't get it. And that question is just why fight for a racist country? Because what I mean is on the one hand, at the time of the Civil War, there was obviously a big motivator for black Americans to see the abolition of slavery succeed and all that. But at the same time, even if you were in the North, you were far from, you know, an equal citizen with your white counterpart. You know, racism was prevalent in the North States as well. And the prospect that the war would end that was kind of dubious. So choosing to fight for the North seems a little to me like a lesser of two evils situation, which can be rather demotivating. And in some ways, we might see a parallel to that in the state of our politics in America today, where, you know, you've got two parties, one of which seems a little more willing than the other to pay lip service to the interests of black communities, but still maybe a little slow to action in the opinions of some voters. So uh, that can lead to some disenchantment with politics as well. And also, I don't want to forget that you are yourself a military man and a person of color. So I'm sure you've got a, a perspective on this that, that could be really enlightening. So given all of that, then and now, essentially what I'm asking is, why bother? What, what were the motivations of these black Civil War soldiers, which are obviously very deep motivations, and what do they tell us about the deeper reasons that a person might have to fight for a cause? So first, Brandon, you got to understand, yeah. fighting for a racist country is part and parcel for American soldiers, really from the founding of the nation. Mm -hmm. What makes the Civil War a little different is that this was a chance to fight uh, for a racist nation at a time when it could make a substantive change in the foundations. If we look at the the history of black soldiers, even before the Civil War, you know, we had blacks that fought in the revolution. We had blacks that fought in the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we had blacks uh, in limited numbers that fought in the in the Mexican-American War. Uh, and each time there was sort of that dangled promise that freedom would come, at least for the soldiers who participated, if not for the, the larger black population. 
Well, this was the first time that Blacks had a, uh, a sense that their fighting could actually make an end to slavery. And so that is, you know, on the table as the biggest of the, the motivations for them and sort of the okay. obvious one, sure. um, I would agree. Now, this is interwoven, though, with that manhood concept. So for many of these men, the mm -hmm. very real inability to protect their families, to control their work and even their bodies uh, was what they really wanted to fight to uh, to attain. Got to say, though, that there is a note that there's a real danger to attributing a universal reason for the motivations of the soldiers. Uh, they were individuals and as such made their choices for so many different reasons that it's it's almost foolhardy to make a sweeping generalization. Yeah, naturally, of course. Uh, so what I'm hearing is that at any other time in history when they fought like the Revolutionary War or the uh, War of 1812, they did in fact fight, but they didn't have that immediate prospect like it was actually on the agenda of politics that they could actually make a substantive improvement within their lifetime that's pretty much what it comes down to is what i'm hearing that's right yeah. and so in the only time when it really was laid out there explicitly uh was in the revolution and okay. interestingly for uh for americans uh the side that offered them their freedom though was the british uh lord <laughs> okay. dunmore <laughs> all right uh offered escaped slaves uh, an opportunity to gain their freedom uh, in what became known as Lord Dunsmore's Regiment. Uh, and these these soldiers fought and had the, uh, the British won, uh, would have gained their citizenship in Great Britain, uh, but not for the Americans who fought alongside of the, the American soldiers in the war. Hmm. And so kind of an interesting one there okay. uh, for those. Interesting. All right. So yes, that, that makes total sense. And now I want to kind of bring that to the sense of masculinity, which you've already started to do, uh, the sense of masculinity that informed these black soldiers' motivations. And there are two motives in your book that you touch upon again and again that relate to this. And those are, on the one hand, proving oneself a man in battle, which I think is pretty straightforward for our listeners. And the other is earning a path to citizenship, which might take a little bit more explaining. So what I mean by a path to citizenship is, you know, your ability to be a provider for your family, which is a key part of traditional masculinity, is often, you know, dependent on being able to wield some level of power in society. So, you know, being a full participating citizen is really crucial to the traditional sense of manhood. And this is something that we also saw in our series Sex in the Third Reich, where Jews in Germany thought that they could uh, advance their position in society, you know, increase their inclusion in society through joining the military and fighting in World War I. Didn't work out so well for them, unfortunately. Uh, but it's kind of a parallel to what happened, it looks like here, in the Civil War for black Americans. So it's, it's, it's difficult to provide for your family to be a man in that sense when you have little or no civic inclusion and in the case of pre-Civil War blacks, even in the North, even as a free man, you know, you're not respected equally. Your networks of social support are limited. Your wealth generation prospects are systematically undermined by being shut out of the more, you know, lucrative aspects of society. And even in many states, I believe you didn't even have the ability to vote in, or it was uh, limited in many respects. You can maybe uh, comment on that if I'm not quite right there, but it was really tough to be a full citizen even as a free person in the north 
So looking at that, in that Civil War era, can you tell us a little about these black soldiers' hopes that their military service could actually improve their prospects for civic inclusion and thus their sense of manhood? So as 21st century Americans, uh, and I've heard you use the term person several times here um, uh, in, the, in the course of the discussion, and that would not have happened in the 19th century. Interesting uh, so point. <laughs> what, what, what we're hearing there is, is that the frequent refrain to prove their manhood had a resonance that I'm not sure we can fully appreciate. Mm. Uh, few would argue that America is a free and equal society now, but it's far more so than it was in the 1800s. To be mm -hmm. a man then meant you had the reins of power. Few women could aspire to govern. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was, what, 1869 uh, that saw Julia Addington elected to be superintendent of schools in Mitchell County, Iowa. First woman elected anywhere in the United States to office. Uh, so manhood opened a whole range of options, generally only available to white men. Combat yep. was seen as uh, not only one of the responsibilities, but also one of the rights of manhood. It was inextricably linked uh, mm -hmm. with those of citizens uh, for the folks of those time. So Frederick Douglass uh, gave a, a speech uh, in Philadelphia in, in the middle of 1863 entitled, Should the Negro Enlist in the Union Army? Uh, and so they had the same questions then that we have now. You know, why, why would we possibly want to do this, given all of the, the challenges that face us? Uh, and he argued, once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pockets, and there is no power on earth or under the earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship in the United States. And so I think when we talk about their motivation, mm -hmm. uh, this path to citizenship is something that we don't really have an, uh, an analog for now. But these guys, for them, this was their one shot. Uh, this mm -hmm. was a real shot uh, that this could happen. As we know, not so much. Yeah, with hindsight, we, we know. But at the time, you can see how it might have really felt like finally, you know, uh, the, the fissures in society have begun to appear. And if you just push a little harder, like maybe it'll crack open. That must have been the hope that they saw on the horizon. It was, and, and it kind of is depressing because that's what I feel about our society right now is is that mm. the the cracks and fissures that we're we're seeing opened last summer mm -hmm. um, offer the same types of promise for equality and equity in our society and I'm not entirely sure that uh, we aren't facing the same sort of uh, of retrenchment um, by the by the powers that be and so right yeah. agreed and and for listeners who are listening to this late maybe. Uh, a little later in the future, um, the George Floyd protests that happened actually in my backyard of Minneapolis, uh, what we're referencing here, but of course, which exploded across the entire globe in terms of rage and potentially hope for, you know, something better. Exactly. So to go back to your point about um, like using the word person a little bit in air quotes, that was really interesting. Obviously, you are absolutely 100% correct about how uh, there's a gendered uh, thing there going on at, at the time where it's very much about a man, but also what also popped in my head is the extent to which a black American counted at the time in the perspective of the time as a person in the sense of like almost just a, a human. Like, was there a sense in which they had to prove that they were fully human or was that something that didn't really reach that level of scientific racism until later? 
Well, the era of scientific racism actually is is a sort of an effort to demonstrate what was accepted in the 19th century. Mm. And so by the 20th century, when scientific racism becomes a, a big deal, people are are questioning the thought that uh, that blacks and whites have any hope of, of equality. In the 19th century, that wasn't even really the question. And so the thought mm. that they could be uh, seen as fully human by their uh, by their white citizen counterparts uh, wasn't really a question for for most. Uh, and so, no, they, they really didn't have a sense that without that citizenship, uh, the personhood that they uh, that they would need to attain for uh, for the black population wasn't really even on the table. And so this was something that they had to do as a, a sort of a two step uh, approach. They had to gain citizenship mm-hmm. in order to demonstrate a right to uh, to personhood so that they could become uh, fully human in the eyes of uh, of many in the United States. Right, that makes total sense. All right, Verb, I want to like switch gears just a little bit now. So we've got a pretty good footing now on their motives and kind of this sense of how manhood is very much involved in these questions here. And now I want to kind of switch to the lived experience of these men. And you paint a little bit of a picture of the trials and tribulations that they faced, the pain that they suffered, the hopes and the fears, and ultimately their determination to persevere. Yeah. And so the challenges you know, for them were, were extreme. And so when they first enter the, the federal service, uh, they do so with the expectation that their their treatment is going to be equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the average Civil War soldier earned $10 a month uh, as their pay, and then they received an additional $4 a month for uh, uniform maintenance and equipment and those sorts of things. And so essentially, a soldier would get $14 a month for their pay. Mm-hmm. The black soldiers got the $10 a month, but they didn't get the uh, the additional $4 uh, initially. And so for the first year or so of the service for these soldiers, uh, they were being paid less than their uh, their white counterparts for the same jobs. That's the mm-hmm. one that, that really catches the attention of, of folks. Uh, and in the movie Glory, they actually discuss whether or not they're going to have a, a sort of a revolt in order to gain equality of pay. Uh, they decide not to because they think that that's going to change the view uh, that people have of them and see them as you know, sort of opportunists rather than as patriots, uh, which I still find interesting. Right, which but, was uh, obviously in the in the movie, but also historical, right? Because you mentioned that in your book as well for the people in the Ohio regiment we're talking about, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so the challenge is, is real. Um, but the one that, that really strikes me, even after they equalize the pay, um, and so the Congress comes in, uh, they give them the $4 additional pay, and uh, interestingly, go back and make it retroactive. And so they actually get all, all of the, the money uh-huh. from the beginning of the time that they serve. Sure, the back pay, yeah. Where the challenge exists in my mind, and nobody really seems to address, is is that the black soldiers got that whether they were a private or whether they were a sergeant major. And so from the bottom of the rank all the way to the top of, mm-hmm. of what was reasonable for blacks at the time, they all got the same pay. For white 
non-commissioned officers, white sergeants, uh, they got additional pay because they were sergeants. And so no one ever really talks about the, the equality of that piece of it uh, as it stands. And so for blacks, you got extra work, extra responsibility, but no extra pay for it. Oh, I see. Uh, and yeah. so a challenge there. Yeah. The other gotcha. thing that, that from my perspective mm-hmm. uh, is really unique for the black soldiers in the, in the civil war is their officers. And so okay. the officers of a, of a standard civil war regiment uh, would have been your, uh, your neighbors that you had decided either had some sort of leadership quality that you saw, or they could buy more beer. Mm, they could buy more beer. <laughs> <laughs> good good supply. Popularity is popularity. Yeah. And so for the, for the black regiments, however, uh, the when the federal government took control of the uh, the United States colored troops, they decided that uh, there was a real risk that they were not going to be able to get good folks to come and lead the black troops. They weren't mm-hmm. willing to offer any sort of monetary incentive uh, that would pay more to lead a, a black regiment than a white regiment. And so most of the folks that they expected to apply for the positions to lead these troops were folks who were already in the uh, in the U.S. Army or in the volunteer regiments, mm-hmm. but who were enlisted. And so this was a, a way to get a pay bump um, by going in and leading black troops. Mm-hmm. So what they did was is they set up a, uh, a board of review. And you had to, if you wanted to lead black troops, go in and take this test to cover tactics and logistics and uh, some history and math and English. Uh, so sort of a super ACT. And the grade that you got on this test determined your rank. And so in the fifth USCT's experience, this didn't always work out great uh, because it, there was nothing on there about morality or about your attitude towards blacks in general. Uh, and so it took probably the first 18 months of their time in service for Giles Shirtliff who became the the regiment's commander uh, to weed out the officers that he felt uh, weren't sufficiently abolitionist or sufficiently at least Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. sympathetic with their black troops uh, before the the regiment really began to to hit its full stride. Yeah, not all of them were Matthew Broderick, right? Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been nice. But but yeah, so the, the, the soldiers... Uh, faced the same sorts of privations that their uh, their white counterparts did. Uh, they had more difficulty with medical issues because they did not have the same type of, of medical care. Um, and some of the the stories that I read in their uh, in the research that I did uh, at the National Archives uh, just depicted the the horrors of having surgeons who were unsympathetic or and unskilled uh, mm-hmm. working on these black troops. Uh, and so the the numbers of, of black soldiers who died because of their wounds or because of disease uh, is far higher than that of the uh, their white counterparts during the time. Yeah, and I, I think the statistic in your book was for disease for this regiment was something like 50% higher. I mean, it was it was a mind-blowing statistic. Is that right? Yeah, and this is this is part of the challenge. Uh, is, is that they did not have a, a clear understanding of what causes disease mm-hmm. uh, at the time. 
Um, and so sort of like the Trump administration, they thought it was just sort of magic, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 clearly, uh, if it's a black regimen in particular that has the much higher rate than everyone else who also is treating it like magic, you know, there's something else going on there, right? Yeah. And so part of it is, as we know, uh, is is the condition uh, that you're in for sanitation. Uh, and so as black troops, you could expect that their uh, location of their camps was going to be uh, whatever was least desirable at the time. Uh, they spent a, a fair amount of time in lowlands and swamps where you could expect to have uh, an inability to get dry and clean mm -hmm. uh, on a regular basis. And so uh, disease really dogs them throughout their uh, their time in service. Yeah. And it occurs to me that it also is probably quite relevant to manhood to go through all of these sorts of sufferings and trials and tribulations and still keep your chin up, still fight as hard or harder than your fellow white soldier, because you probably had more to prove, frankly. Oh, absolutely. Um, where this actually comes to, to play is in the Battle of New Market Heights. Hmm. So in... September of 1864, the 5th Regiment finds itself um, outside of Petersburg, Virginia, where the Union Army has encircled Lee's forces um, in the closing acts of the, uh, of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. The regiment has both the good and bad fortune of serving under General Benjamin Butler, uh, a political general from Massachusetts. Uh, good news because uh, he's a real friend, uh, an abolitionist. Uh, bad news because he's not a great general. Uh, and so his ability to lead them into ways that were likely to gain success was was not good. Yeah, that'd be me. Um, I'd be that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, and so he he actually has them assault a, a Confederate position uh, at a place called New Market Heights. But he sends them in piecemeal. And so one regiment mm. follows, the next regiment follows, the next regiment. And so the, the Confederates are able to concentrate their fire uh, on the individual regiments as they present themselves rather than having a, uh, a broad array uh, coming in at the same time. Mm. The Confederates take the advantage to kill or wound at least uh, the white officers. Because if you think about you know, the, the times um, in a black regiment, finding the officers is going to be extraordinarily simple because oh it's the white guys uh, <laughs> right, and, right. and so the confederates mass their out. fire on the white guys which would have been a, a mm. bad day for brandon not so bad for bird sure yep <laughs> and so this meant that early in the uh, in the assault uh, the officers were all out of combat mm -hmm. the black soldiers who by the the terms of the time uh, would have been expected to have turned tail and ran at that point uh, picked up the the colors and continued the assault, driving the Confederates out of their uh, their position. Yeah, and that's an amazing part of the story too, uh, because you know the way you set up this battle, it kind of sounds like you know the last season of Game of Thrones, where it's just like, oh crap, this is so disappointing. But then, uh, then you know, after saying everything that you had before about how the the quality of the white officers were mixed at best, but then. Uh, the black soldiers actually fill those roles and kind of prove themselves like they actually had the talents, the capacity, which was doubted at the time, but they proved that they could do it. Right. And the, the government, to its credit, 
recognizes this. Uh, and so not a lot of blacks in the Civil War would earn the Medal of Honor, uh, but four of the men in this regiment um, did earn them that day. Uh, and so this regiment, despite the fact that it, it isn't the 54th Massachusetts, doesn't get its own movie, uh, does have four Medal of Honor winners uh, in its ranks. And so uh, there's much to be said about that. All right. General Take it. General Butler actually commissions a separate medal uh, for the Army of the James uh, hmm. that he gives to, to a broader group of these soldiers. Um, and it's it's one of those nice to have things. It doesn't have any federal standing. Uh, obviously, at that time, hmm. the Medal of Honor was the only uh, federal medal. Um, but it really kind of indicates the the level of respect that he had gained for uh, for these soldiers. So the medal was it was specifically designed as this is going to be a medal for black soldiers. Like every time this medal is given out, it's always going to be for a black soldier. So it's specific uh, racially. No, okay. No, it's just specific to this battle. Oh, gotcha, um, gotcha. And okay. So he gives this battle out to uh, to soldiers who had already fought. Uh, in this battle. And so it was never again uh, issued. Uh, it was struck in a limited number mm. um, and given to the soldiers that had fought in this battle uh, as a commemoration of their, uh, their sacrifice. All right. I gotcha. Um, well, I, I've, I've got another uh, aspect to inquire about here. So I'm just, I'm curious. And this uh, this thing I'm going to ask about doesn't often show up in the resources. You might have nothing or you might have something really interesting. Let's see. But I'm curious about those other people on the margins of society, margins of accepted manhood, such as black men who loved other men, uh, blacks who were maybe assigned sex as female, but who showed perhaps that they had a more masculine identity in how they saw themselves. And, you know, maybe we could also throw in, what about black women? You know, because certainly in the history of this country and other places in the world, you do find lots of stories where women, like, dress up as men in order to fight in a war or, you know, in other ways contribute to the war. So what about these other voices and perspectives? I'm wondering if anything turned up in your research of this period that might be interesting for you know, the intersection between black and, you know, what today we would call LGBTQ+. So the challenge is twofold. Uh, the first is, is that uh, the records for the regiment don't really address this as a, uh, as a thing. And so if you, had, if you think about American society in the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, coming out publicly as LGBTQ wouldn't have just been shameful. It would have been illegal. Uh, and so the only place we might have found it in the records would have been someplace where someone was being punished for mm. uh, for that behavior. And so sure. I don't really have uh, records of that in the uh, in the Civil War. What we know about the uh, the fifth really comes from just official records, black newspapers and the writings of the white officers. So perhaps it's unsurprising uh, that there's not much mention of them. The women back home uh, don't really appear in the record until they begin applying for widows' pensions, okay. uh, which you know, the society almost never grants black women. Hmm. And then the regiment, because it left Ohio a few soldiers short and because soldiers were being killed and, and wounded in relatively high numbers, they continued to recruit uh, throughout in North Carolina. And the course of this also took on uh, the services of laundresses and cooks. Uh, so they had camp followers who uh, existed for the black regiments as well. 
I'm not aware of any women who posed as men uh, in the black regiments in the Civil War. Uh, Harriet Tubman famously cross-dressed in her role as a a Union spy, though. Oh, interesting. Yep, of course. Yeah. And then there was a a notable one in the post-war black army regiments, uh, a woman named Cathay Williams. Uh, She was enslaved in Missouri before the war. Uh, and ended up working in the Union camps during the Civil War. We don't know if she actually begins serving during the Civil War, uh, but she does cross and uh, enlist as William Cathay uh, in November of 1866 in the Union Army's 38th Infantry hmm. Regiment, one of the Buffalo Soldier Regiments. Wow, and then uh, before her gender became known, it took almost two years. Uh, so uh, she contracted smallpox and was hospitalized a, a number of times. And on the last of those times, uh, the surgeon finally realized that he was treating a woman. Uh, and so she was discharged from the uh, from the Army at that point. Hmm. In 1876, the St. Louis Daily Times published an account of her military service. And so she had you know, real evidence of that. And yet, she made a pension claim in 1891. Uh, it was finally rejected in 1893, and she really disappears from the record after that. Um, and so we assume uh, that she dies penniless uh, since we have no further record of, of her death or burial. Okay, interesting that she, at least uh, there was enough hope that she filled out the form and was like, there might be a chance that they'll actually give me a pension, even though now they know that I'm not you know, what I said I was. Uh, they didn't, of course, give her that. But um, interesting that at, at least she must have had some hope there that they might have viewed it a different way. Yeah, there's a, there's precedent for it, actually. Uh, and so there were uh, women in the Revolution and in the War of 1812 who gained pensions from the government for their service. Uh, Molly Pitcher is probably the, the most famous example of that in the Revolution, um, but no black yeah. women. Yeah. I want to say, um, was it Deborah Sampson? I might not have that quite right, but I want to say that was another one. Now, I don't know about the pension part, but someone who, a woman who fought as a man in the Revolutionary War. So I looked it up afterward, and that was correct. Uh, Deborah Sampson, she went by Robert Shirtliff, and she went so far as to extract a musket ball from her own thigh just so that doctors would not discover her secret. When wounded another time and knocked unconscious, one Dr. Beanie discovered the cloth that she used to bind her breasts, but esteemed her valor on the battlefield enough that he kept her secret for her until the end of the war. At that time, he sent a letter to the high-ups that did reveal her sex, but instead of receiving a reprimand, as was common in this situation, she received an honorable discharge like every other soldier coming out of the war. And she did, in fact, receive a pension. Right. Yeah, so... So I think that that for the the folks who tried to uh, to serve as males um, who were female or uh, who avoided service because of females, uh, other than I guess Jefferson Davis, who who was captured uh, dressed as a female, he tries to escape. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, a little little interesting footnote at the end there. <laughs> uh, so I think that there's not a lot of not a lot of uh, reporting of that in the, in the time. Interesting. And to bring this back to masculinity too, just for the perspective of, you know, us looking back at it from modern times, at that time, to be someone who loved other men didn't necessarily make you uh, femi. There were like other ways to be a gay man, right, at that time, where you could be very masculine, very bullish, um, and yet, you know, be... 
homosexual as we would describe it today. So people wouldn't stand out necessarily at the time. And I just wonder kind of like all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of manhood uh, and how the soldier status impacted that at the time, I think that would probably still apply very well even to men like that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wonder now that as I think about this, uh, if some of the things that I have read uh, didn't actually indicate this between the lines, uh, because there was discussion about uh, soldiers who uh, were very close uh, with their mates, uh, one of whom later came up pregnant. Um, hmm. But the fact that they uh, that they discussed their uh, their closeness with their comrades at sort of you know par for the course leads me to think that this was uh, that the men uh, loving other men thing may have been more common than we've uh, than we've approached before. Certainly, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Um, there was certainly in that time period a, a big homosocial thing that wasn't necessarily sexual, but it could be sexual uh, as far as my understanding is concerned uh, from a, a broad Western culture perspective, anyway. Sure. Well, very interesting. So the last thing that I kind of want to ask, Verb, is like, how did it work out in the end for many of these black soldiers? What was the outcome um, for those who fought in the Civil War? I mean, obviously... The abolition of slavery did succeed, even if it was then followed by Jim Crow laws that walked back so much of what had been accomplished and then really kind of stymied the progress for many, many decades afterward. Uh, but apart from that, did service in the Civil War by blacks significantly improve their lot? And how about for those specifically in the 5th Ohio Regiment in particular? You know, did it what they were hoping for and what we've been talking about in terms of masculinity, how it might uh, you know, prove themselves on the battlefield and uh, help others to see them as equal men because of that service. And maybe also uh, that path to citizenship where you can be a more effective provider for your family. How did it work out in the end for these men? Well, Brandon, if this was a good novel, the service of blacks <laughs> in the Civil War would have led not only to the end of slavery in the United States, but also to full citizenship and equal rights earned by the service of those 180,000 black soldiers or by the death of the around 36,000 of them. Right. The truth, unfortunately, is not that. <laughs> that most of the men who served in the 5th USCT uh, returned to their lives relatively unimproved by their service. Hmm. Uh, Ohio had already allowed blacks limited voting rights before the war. So even that wasn't a major gain for Ohio soldiers. Perhaps the, the one notable exception was Milton Holland, who was one of the four Medal of Honor winners at the Battle of Newmarket Heights. Mm -hmm. uh, he left Ohio, uh, unlike most of his contemporaries, and went to work in Washington, D.C. Uh, he became a banker uh, and eventually a postmaster for the, uh, for the U.S. Postal Service, okay. retired with a small fortune and a prominent uh, standing in D.C.'s Black society. He's actually buried in Arlington National Cemetery and has a very large headstone uh, in honor his, of his achievements. Uh, but he's very much an outlier uh, in this group. And so for most, it doesn't really work out. And the reason that we know this uh, mm -hmm. is the case is because one of the real primary sources that's, uh, that's fruitful 
is looking at pension records that start coming in the late 1870s through the turn of the century. And in most of the cases, these are men who are destitute or the wives of men uh, who are destitute or who have left them destitute. And so my sense of it is very much that not a lot changes economically or uh, or socially for for these men. And so they're uh, they're laying another layer of the foundation uh, that is necessary, but they aren't going to reap the benefits themselves. Yeah, there's a real tragic note at the end there after all that they went through. And uh, the thing that really drives it home for me, and make sure I get this right, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. So Ohio, at the end of the war, as the states were then going to ratify the amendments that freed the slaves, Ohio was not going to ratify it until they felt like overwhelming pressure from other parts of society. Is that correct? That's right. And so Ohio would not have ratified the the 13th, 14th or 15th amendments uh, had it not been clear uh, that they were going to have overwhelming ratification. And Ohio didn't want to stand out uh, in that regard Mm. uh, at the end. Yeah. So even their home state was ready to sell them out after what they did for their home state. This is true. (laughs) Well, (laughs) such such a happy ending to end on. Uh, But yeah, well, here's uh, crossing our fingers for the future, I guess. A lot of the issues we're still dealing with today, you know. Uh, One of the things, actually, uh, speaking of things that we're still dealing with today that I wondered about, uh, maybe this will be the last thing that we can end on, is so you had mentioned earlier in our interview here how there was not equal pay, but there was a debate among black soldiers about whether or not they should, you know, complain about it for fear that they would appear greedy or something. And greed was uh, like a big part of the stereotype of Africans going back more than decades, centuries into like Euro-American stereotypes of Africans. So it seems to me that what they were facing is what we would today call stereotype threat, where you're faced with the prospect of like, well, do I do this and have people think it's because of, you know, the color of my skin or do I do that? And and just being caught in that trap. Am I reading it that way correctly? Yes, I believe so. And and as you say, you know, it has been a part of our society uh, from the beginning and even today. Uh, when the topic of reparations, for instance, comes up, you know, people are saying, you know, why should we give these people this money? They're just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, the greed is just the issue uh, for them. They have not earned this money uh, in any uh, in any sense, which you know tells me that they don't understand economics even a little. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but but the the reality of the of the situation is is that uh, you do have that that constant tug between. You know what is going to be acceptable to the rest of my society versus what is best for my family, uh, and these mm-hmm. soldiers had had that uh, in spades. And so, trying to to figure out whether or not they wanted to go and fight in the war or needed to go and fight in the war was a, a real challenge for many of these uh, these soldiers. And the the black papers of the times uh, were full of these types of debates, uh, the types of questions that, that come up is as to why should we fight, what sorts of things, which is you know, what leads to the, the Frederick Douglass speech. Um, is that sense that you know, we have to bring this all uh, down to a, a level that is not about individuals, but about the, about the race. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us, Verb. Uh, before we go, the last thing, uh, just is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know? Any projects that you're working on now that you'd like to mention? Let us know. So I don't have any uh, any history projects of note in the works. I'm a cyclist, uh, so I'm intrigued with okay. the story of uh, Marshall Major Taylor. Um, but much has been written about him, so I'm not sure I'll find an angle to bring something new to the table there. Um, but I'm also looking at another group of late 19th century black cyclists, the 25th Infantry Regiment's Bicycle Corps. Huh. Um, yeah, these men made some very long treks on their bikes in hopes of determining the practicality uh, of bikes rather than horses as a mode of transport for soldiers. And so if I can find a nexus between Taylor and these men, uh, I think that'll be worth writing. Interesting. Um, my work at, at the University of Dayton uh, has me engaged in strategic planning around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so there's a fair amount of work involved in that uh, that's keeping me occupied at the moment. Uh, but hopefully once we finish the, uh, that process in the summer, uh, then I'll be back to having time to, to dig into the, the archives a little bit more. All right. So Bicycle Soldiers is maybe uh, around the corner for you. <laughs> that would be a really interesting topic uh, in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, thank you again for being with us, Verb. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Brandon. All right. Thank you once again to Verb Washington for that enlightening interview. Be sure to check out his book, Eagles on Their Buttons, a Black Infantry Regiment in the Civil War. It's a slim read, concise, but enlightening for anyone interested in military history, racial justice, or the history of masculinity. Well, that's all for today, folks. If you like what we're doing here, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I drew Verb as a soldier in the 5th Ohio Regiment at the request of his daughter, Veronica, who just happens to be a patron of our show. Thank you once again, Veronica. And if you sign up, listeners, then I will draw you as a stolid soldier, a bellicose bugler, a proud piper, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome. I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, I'll see you next time, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Lord, I done done. Lord, I done done. Lord, I done done. I done done what you
Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.